Welcome to Jaws of Justice Radio on 90.1 FM, KKFI, Kansas City Community Radio. It's Monday morning. My name is Terry. Today, during the first half of our show, host Bev Livingston will speak with Angelica Jimenez, debt-free justice senior attorney, justice and equity team, who is with the National Center for Youth Law. They will speak on the topic of ending fines and fees against youth in Missouri. The National Center for Youth Law believes in the incredible power, agency, and wisdom of youth. They have worked for more than 50 years to transform government agencies and public systems so that they center youth with equity, dignity, and care. Their work has led to foundational shifts in policy and standards of practice in communities and states nationwide. We'll play the calendar at the midpoint of our hour. During the second half, host Keith Brownell will speak with Naeem Alamin, founder and CEO of Swag Inc. Swag Inc. is on a mission to promote ownership among people impacted by mass incarceration. That means helping others own their story, own their finances, and own their future. Swag Inc.'s vision is a smarter, more caring criminal justice system that doesn't set people up for failure a system that prioritizes mental health care and addiction treatment over incarceration. We can all envision fewer families demolished by the criminal justice system. Swag Inc. envisions what people long for behind bars, freedom. On Jaws of Justice, we examine how to find justice in our society. Justice will not be served until those who are unaffected are as outraged as those who are. Now, our show. Good morning. It's uh, Bev Livingston with Janae Relliford, founder and CEO of Camp Choice. And also joining us is Angelique Jimenez, the um, debt-free justice campaign senior attorney. We would like very much to welcome our guest and begin talking about the debt-free justice campaign. And I'd like to um, ask Angelique to just kind of introduce yourself and tell us why the um, national debt-free justice campaign has kicked off. Yes, it's great to speak with you this morning, Bev. Um, It's lovely to see you. I would be happy to share a little bit more background. I've been really an advocate for my entire career after law school, and so I've been involved in social justice issues for nearly 20 years now. And um, I'd worked as a guardian ad litem, so I worked in Milwaukee seeing firsthand how youth were being treated in the system and um, really propelled me to do work on a more a larger scale and so I'd worked in Illinois that's where I currently am I'm outside of Chicago right now and um, to do policy advocacy work as survivors of survivors of domestic abuse sexual violence um, for youth that have been in contact with the child welfare and juvenile justice systems so the National Center for Youth Law this campaign the National Center for Youth Law works in many different within many different systems education health healthcare, immigration, foster care. And so what this campaign that just launched in 2021 formally in partnership with the University of California, Berkeley, their policy um, policy advocacy clinic, as well as the Juvenile Law Center, what we're really aiming to do here is to end the harmful and unjust practice of fines and fees that are imposed on youth and their families in the juvenile justice system. So. Um, we're going to continue learning about the debt-free justice campaign. I'd like to get Janae in here real quick to talk about Camp Choice and how she founded such a wonderful youth opportunity and experience. And she is founder and CEO. So welcome, Janae. Thank you so much, Ms. Livingston. Good morning, everyone. Um, how Camp Choice came about. So I lost my mother uh, as a teenager, 15 years old. She died in a car accident. I'm the oldest of four. A couple of things my mother did for me before she passed. She signed me up for a scholarship program uh, through the Kaufman Foundation, and she gave me a spiritual foundation. of Christ, which has been my saving grace even more than the scholarship program. But that scholarship program 
introduced me to an entrepreneur awareness program. It was called Jumpstart Entrepreneur Awareness Program. And I didn't know anything about entrepreneurship, um, but I had this journey I was on since losing my mom. I made a bunch of poor choices. I got pregnant. Um, and that is what you know stirred the passion in me for Camp Choice. Choice stands for children having opportunities in creating an environment. That means the choices we make create the environment we find ourselves in. So our mission is to uh, provide life enrichment experiences that enhance the spiritual, educational, and social well-being of young people. Um, so I've been on a mission for over 22 years just to simply help young people make better choices in life. Wow, what a great opportunity we have to hear from Angie with the Debt-Free Justice Campaign and Camp Choice, which has been doing some awesome retreats, I know about that, from volunteering. And I want to get back to Angie, and let's talk about Missouri and why it's so important for the fines and fees to be taken seriously by young people. And tell us about some of the consequences for not paying fees and fines and maybe the disparity of youth of color, how it impacts our communities in terms of how young people are handled and how they can end up in the pipeline to prison with some of this making them look like repeat offenders depending on what their their um, convictions are as adults. So Angie, would you like to address some of that? Yes, thank you. You know, this is a topic that really doesn't get covered as much. We do talk, you know, about incarceration and Missouri has been moving forward and there is Missouri, a Missouri model. But what we don't talk a lot about are these fees and fines that can hang very heavy and continue to burden families. Um, there's there are serious consequences that can happen if they aren't able to pay. And a lot of these families aren't. They don't come from means. And so they were already struggling economically. And so some of the consequences, they can have their tax refund or their parents can have their tax refund garnished. Um, they can have their cases, their juvenile delinquency cases can stay open for years, years beyond the initial incident. Or they can actually, they can be held in contempt of court or their parents can be held in contempt of court. So this is something that can impact their future, their chances for success. And as Janae was saying, we want to give them as many chances as we can and allow them to make the healthy choices they can to succeed. And this is getting completely undermining that ability. And in Missouri, in many states, not just Missouri, but I'm going to say that fees and fines are most frequently assessed against low-income communities of color, youth of color. And they we know that the data shows that they're more likely to be arrested and face attention than their white peers. And that is just, that's a fact that's disproportionate burden that communities of color are paying into the system with taxes and additionally having to pay fines and fees. And so we're saying it's completely unjust. These students should be in school. They should be students. They shouldn't be taxpayers paying into the system. Awesome. I applaud the efforts to make the public aware of how important the youth interactions are with the systems of oppression and, and corrections and, and family court and incarceration. It is unfortunate that there is such a disparity between the populations of lower income youth and those who are able to pay those fines, fees, and attorney um, services that need to be rendered to help young people that get caught up. You know, maybe one bad choice, maybe one time, but the repeat offenses and other things need to be addressed and seriously addressed. I, I really appreciate the way Janae's Camp Choice deals with proactive prevention kind of mindset so that young people don't have to follow that path. Um, I was watching the Bostick release today, and it was amazing how that young man had the judge advocating for him after being overly sentenced and being 16 years old when he was um, convicted. So the juvenile law in the state of Missouri has really helped some who are caught up in the system such as Bobby Bostick. But I want to ask in terms of consequences for not paying the fees and fines, what is it that the debt-free justice campaign is going to do to assist and provide um, youth with support for things like that? 
Sure. So we are tackling this through a multi-pronged approach. We're looking at local advocacy efforts, which we've already started. And the state level, we are looking for to change the current laws that are in the state of Missouri. So just um, on the local level, we've been working with two counties, with Boone and Callaway counties, to help um, address some of these fees and fines. There are fines that are being assessed in some jurisdictions that aren't being assessed in others. And there are fines that are going to the sheriff's fund, going to court reporters, and and so it's supporting the system, right? But for the families, it's a devastating impact. It doesn't, they don't know where the money is. They just get this invoice, goes to, you know, if it gets to collections, they see this bill and they look at this bill and say, do I pay for my rent this month? Or do I try to pay off some of these fines and fees? And so this is a choice that we don't want to ask any family to have to make. So what we're trying to do um, on the local level is to advocate. And we've had a great response from Boone and Callaway that they have looked at their fees and they're um, starting in just a couple of weeks. will be eliminating many of the fees that they um, impose in juvenile court at statewide level. We are looking, I mean, our end goal is ultimate abolishment of fines and fees, right? So we want to get rid of all of the fines. There are so many different fines and fees on the books in Missouri and like I said, other states. So we are um, looking to introduce legislation that would eliminate fines and fees in juvenile court. And so we are moving on this campaign with local partners, um, with stakeholders to to get this across the finish line. So that's why we think it's really important to get that word out there and get the awareness and be working with the youth and getting them to be front and center, to be able to share their stories. That's gonna make such a huge impact for lawmakers to be able to hear. And then they're gonna advocate for themselves. And that's something that if we're able to help our young people and lift them up and get them to be there the next generation, they're our future. So if we can help them through programs like Camp Choice, you know, National Center for Youth Law, we're all in to support that work. Awesome, and it's so important for young people to learn how to advocate for improving the, the lifestyles and the communities and the systems that need to be modified to be more fitting to what's going on today. Um, the expungement opportunities that are coming up is something that our, our youth need to be aware of so that they can kind of get a clean record and become the adult that they've been groomed to become by programs such as Camp Choice. Um, I want to ask you, Janae, what do you feel youth need most to avoid systems of incarceration and problems like we're talking from not being able to pay fines, fees, and not taking it seriously? Mm -hmm. Strong families. As I'm listening to you, Angie, I'm I'm angry because uh, these fees, it's purposeful and it's willful. And and as far as I'm concerned, it's an attack. It's an attack on families and it's an attack on our most vulnerable, which is our youth. Uh, Poverty is a disease that spreads through generations. It's generational. It's cyclical. And when you're living in poverty is and you and in broken families and neighborhoods and communities and schools it's really difficult to make positive choices um so it seems that uh i feel like money should be off the table because that is just not fair that if you come from an affluent background or you have the means you can pay your way out of these situations so take money off the table it's about the human being it's about preserving the value of the person. So take money off the table and help me uh, uh, give retribution for, you know, any any damages that I've caused another person or, you know, I definitely believe that we the choices we make, you know, we, we there's consequences, uh, but we also have to look at the background that these young people come from. And I just think across the board, whatever background you come from, if you can take money off the table and just deal with the human being and the choice they made and how we might be able to uh, mend that. Unfortunately, money is the issue. And I, I, I will share this, and I think it's changed, but I remember back when I first started dealing with advocacy for those incarcerated, I learned that many people had been 
put in the recidivism uh, pipeline because they weren't able to pay that $20 fee to go see their probation officer. And then during my legislative work in Jefferson City, I learned that that wasn't really a part of the, the budget, the state budget, and it was kind of a slush fund. And it was so many people who were scared to show up because they didn't have that fee. So then they would end up going back to prison because they didn't report to their probation officer. Some of that is what we have probably um, set up our youth for. And I know Gen, Gen X, I love the energy, the motivation, the desire that, you young people have now when they protest against systems like this. Angie, I can't tell you how important it is to launch this in Kansas City and St. Louis. And I'm so glad that you brought it to my attention because the opportunity is not only needed and necessary, but it's something that is going to definitely improve our communities by making youth aware of being responsible for their actions. I'm not trying to promote getting a free get out of jail card or anything that will excuse or enable people to be irresponsible, but I think the systems of corrections and incarceration and things like that need to be a little more, a lot more responsible in how they set up the systems and, and how this pipeline works. I'll be so glad when we can just kind of clog up that pipeline to prison because it wasn't enough to have third graders targeted for the pipeline, but now preschoolers are. And and I hear that that's very real, that our kids are just lining up for getting put into this position of point of no return. And I, I can't applaud you and Janae Relaford enough um, for even thinking about our youth and, and how do we save, you know, the, the communities. Kansas City and St. Louis, very much needed. I'm glad you're in some of the other counties and doing some things in the smaller communities, but you're going to find a lot of the people of color in Kansas City and St. Louis that really need the support of the debt-free justice campaign. Yes, no, I'm glad to hear. I'm glad to be part of it. And just to be able to give our young people that voice, that's something that's really key to our campaign is to uplift the youth in this in this advocacy work. Because once it's done, we need to make sure that we keep going, right? Missouri? That's right. That's right. The model is rehabilitation. So let's take, like you said, take the money off the table. There's programs that are out there that are trauma-informed. We talk about intergenerational poverty. What about intergenerational trauma mm -hmm. and what these young people are experiencing? If we don't address that, then how do we get that? We can understand the root causes for some of these the offenses that happen. So we can intervene. We can prevent so let's do that. Let's do things that actually work. Mm -hmm. And Missouri's had, they do have programs. I know this. I see in the communities, there's programs that work mm -hmm. to intervene with these young people and to get them on the path to success. So charging them, charging their families, putting this burden, that's not the way to do it. There's other ways. And so I hope that Missouri will keep going forward with the rehabilitative model and make sure that we give our youth and take that. I'll give you one quick stat, $300,000 over the course of three years, 2019, 2020, 2021, were assessed against young people in juvenile court. That $300,000, where could that money go? Wow. Into programs that are doing the good work on the ground that know the community, like you said, in St. Louis and Kansas City. Mm -hmm. We should reinvest. There you go. Quick question, Janae. How can communities prepare youth for better outcomes um, other than the awareness efforts that are made? And, you know, we have commercials all the time, like preparing us for voting that we just participated in. But what do you think communities can do to just better prepare youth for opportunities like this when it comes to the table? Well, we have to model, first of all. Um, I see in our community, we're so segregated and we're in our silos and everybody seems we're working towards the same goals, but 
you know, we're doing it in our own corner. And I, real, youth need to see us come together and they need to see us take what we have and make what we need to support them. We need to be focusing on strengthening families, neighborhoods and communities and schools. Um, as I shared, all this is all purposeful and willful. Uh, when we when we think about urban schools and the way they're funded and they're funded on local taxes and you know there's going to be a low tax base so that's going to create a p- impoverished school environment so why why are we continuing to fund schools in that way when we know that it creates an inequity so uh, we have to address those issues if we truly care about youth all youth if we truly care about them then we will focus on healthy schools no matter where those schools are healthy families neighborhoods and communities that sounds like a plan and Mm -hmm. I um, applaud both of you for recognizing the need putting together a blueprint and a plan for how to execute it. And I want to say that those formerly incarcerated citizens that are coming home, that are engaging in community programs, um, establishing businesses and brands that are showing how it's not where you've been, but where you're going is a way that some modeling is taking place. I mean, not everybody has to come out and say, you know, I'm formerly incarcerated and now I have yada, yada, yada. But just to show that they have put in some effort and and made a promise that they're keeping. And I want to applaud. Recently, I did a show with SBA. They have funding to help people establish their their businesses and their visions and their ideas when they come home. You know how hard it is for a formerly incarcerated person to walk into a bank or a credit union or someplace and get funding for a great idea? But someone college graduated, never got in trouble before, what have you, could walk in and and possibly get approved, and they're off and running. So I do feel very grateful for the national efforts such as the Biden administration putting that kind of funding out there and making it available. And I encourage anyone who has a loved one incarcerated that has a business idea or has a vision for how to make it better in our communities to apply. I mean, it it doesn't hurt to apply. At least you're not going to get rejected just because you check that box. And that box should not be on applications because we advocated for banning the box, which was oftentimes just uh, you you go dark. Once you check that box, your your app, your, your whatever, whether it's for a job or a mortgage or whatever, it just kind of gives one the black eye and makes it very hard for them to qualify. So I'm, I'm really applauding the efforts nationally. I applaud my sister Janae for the work that she's doing locally and statewide. It's, it's wonderful to know that Camp Choice is going to be doing some things in St. Louis and having retreats and, and reaching our youth because it's so important now that we don't just talk the talk but walk the walk open the door, let them in, and show them how to do what they need to do. And that's what it's all about in my world. Mm-hmm. We've got a couple of minutes left. We need to um, share with our audience some information on how to visit your website, how to communicate for those who are interested in any of the grassroots organizations. Um, let's let people know how they can engage because MIST has been around for 12 years. We may seem like the best kept secret, but when it's time for action at the State House or the White House or whatever house, we come together and we advocate for what's needed. So MIST is um, at mistkc.org and we meet monthly here at the Plex Pod in Kansas City, Missouri off 39th and Warwick and we have support group and advocacy meetings. So mistkc.org if there's anybody interested in speaking to me um, my phone number is 816-337-5876 and I'd like to give Janae her contact um, information time and um, if you'll prepare Angie to share whatever you wish for follow up 
to the um, debt-free justice campaign. Yes, Janae Relafor with Camp Choice. We are at www.campchoicekc.com. I can be reached at area code 816-560-0977. We do adult life simulations for middle and high school youth, as well as life coaching for middle school through age 24. And to learn more about the Debt Free Justice campaign, your debtfreejustice.org learn a lot about the stories of young people so i would highly encourage you to check that out um, our national center for youth law our website is youthlaw.org again my name is angie jimenez and my uh, you can reach me at a jimenez at youthlaw.org or 773-951-7397 awesome well in our one minute left I would like to um, give you ladies an opportunity to make whatever appeal you would like for engaging the public, the families, the grassroots organizations into this campaign for debt-free justice. What is it that we can do to assist the effort? I know there's a timeline involved. Angie, if you can just kind of tell us how this is planning to kick off in Missouri, that would be great. Sure. So, yes, we're trying to ramp up now with the legislative session that's going to start in January. So really what we'd love for young people and families is to to get in touch with us, with me, with the campaign, um, with our communications team to share your stories. You've got amazing folks that are there to help, um, to be able to uplift your voice, to get the word out. We'll be sending out more materials closer to the end of the year. So we will be in touch um, with the folks in Kansas City and in St. Louis and um, just really share your stories and, and want to emphasize that the future for our young people we should not be fined. So we should be empowered and we should be giving every opportunity to our, our youth and families and strengthen them. Awesome. Thank you so much for your time today. Um, we're looking forward to engaging in the um, campaign. And Janae, keep on keeping on. You're doing an awesome job with Camp Choice. And may you have a great day or evening. Let's explore, let's question, let's decolonize together on Ebony's Bones. Tune in every Wednesday from 6 p.m. to 7 p.m. on 90.1 FM, KKFI, Kansas City Community Radio. You are about to hear a paraphrased rendition of several conversations conglomerated into one. So there I was, listening to my old van and my new one. I just did it by donating my van to KKFI, and they turned it into the programming I take with me everywhere I go. So no matter where I'm at on the planet, I tell my smart speaker to play KKFI, or I'm cruising down the road in my new sweet ride, I've got KKFI and my old van going with me wherever I go. And I did it by going to kkfi.org. I found the support tab and learned how to donate my wheels. Thanks, KKFI. A huge thank you to everyone who's donated a car, boat, truck, van, or motorcycle to KKFI. And a future thanks to all of those who have yet to clean out their driveways. Now the calendar for the week of November 14th. Moms Demand Action for Gun Sense in America is a very active group of mothers and others. You can learn where their virtual meetings this week will occur at momsdemandaction.org. Monday, November 14th, 6 p.m., more square monthly issues to action meeting these meetings are open to anyone who's interested in getting involved usually there are some general updates and announcements then teams break out by issue focus to plan their next steps of action the zoom link is available at moresquare.org tuesday november 15th 5 to 7 p.m survivors will heal support group for shooting survivors is a casey mothers in charge support group which meets at 3200 wayne avenue kansas city missouri this is an adult support group please call 816-912-2601 or email latrice.murray at kcmothersincharge.org for more info Tuesday, November 15th at 9 a.m., Kansas Town Hall Research Release and Press Conference is virtual via Zoom. This is a sharing and listening initiative to identify barriers impacting women in the workplace and entrepreneurship, including childcare, paid family leave, broadband access, etc. 
Your voice matters. More info at united-we. Wednesday, November 16th, 1045 a.m. to 1215, harm reduction training is a comprehensive prevention strategy part of the continuum of care. Please join at this harm reduction training brought to you by First Call. This is a virtual event. More info by contacting Kaylee Coulter at kcoulter at gkcceh.org. Thursday, November 17th, 1 to 3 p.m., Justice for KCK Rally. You can join local community and national leaders in the fight to hold KCK PD accountable for their crimes against the KCK community. This rally is at the Unified Government of Wyandotte County in Kansas City, 701 North 7th Street, Traffic Way, Kansas City, Kansas. Thursday, November 17th, 1 to 3 p.m., Rally at the Missouri State Capitol for clemency for Kevin Johnson. More info at Missourians for Alternatives to the Death Penalty.org. Thursday, November 17th, 5 to 7 p.m., Hope and Healing for Survivors of Homicide is a Casey Mothers in Charge support group which meets at 3200 Wayne Avenue, Kansas City, Missouri. This is an adult support group. Please call 816 912 2601 for more info. A list of services, meals, and hotlines specific to sheltering are available at Lawrence Progressive Calendar.blogspot.com. My name is Terry, reminding you that these events and more can be found on the Jaws of Justice radio page on the KKFI website, kkfi.org, as well as the Jaws of Justice Facebook page. Stay safe. Thanks to our engineer, Stan Thomas. Thanks to all our listeners. Stay close to your dial and stay well. We will now return to our show. This is Keith Brownio, and this is Jaws of Justice Radio. And I am with Mr. Naeem El-Amin, who has an organization known as SWAG. And uh, we want to talk about some of the things that he's involved in with his organization. How are you doing this morning, sir? I'm too blessed to be stressed. It's a pleasure to be on Jaws of Justice this morning with you, Keith. Okay. Uh, can you, what, what is the meaning of your name? Great question. And so my name, Naeem Alameen, it, trans, it translates into one that is tranquil, that being Naeem. Alameen translates into one that is trustworthy. And this was something that was important to me as I wanted to better define myself and create a de- definition to my legacy as I grew up not knowing who my father is. Mm-hmm. How long has your organization been in existence? Well, I incorporated Swag Inc. after I was released from prison, March 22nd, 2018. And so we incorporated August 2nd, 2019, becoming a 501c3 tax-exempt entity. How did it come to be known as Swag, and what does Swag stand for? Really great question, Keith. Um, The acronym for Swag Inc., it stands for Serve witness and give guidance, inspiration never ceases. Uh, it become known as that as um, I was inspired to write my business plan while I was incarcerated, um, thinking of something that could create legacy, also elevate the status of people being impacted by mass incarceration like I had been. Okay, now what kind of services does SWAG provide? Really, really great question. And so I think that ties into what we do at Swag Inc. And so Swag Inc., we offer uh, three things to disrupt mass incarceration. And that is never go in, never go back. And we help employers change the way they recruit. In terms of never go in, that is market value assets that we create in after school programming with our partners over at KCPS to create barriers for young people to enter the criminal justice system. Never go back, that's the work that we do with returning citizens, our people that are currently incarcerated to help develop them through education, employment, etiquette, and entrepreneurship. The way that we help employers change the way they recruit, Keith, is that we connect them to that untapped talent pool in the Department of Corrections. How many staff members do you have? So uh, we're a startup nonprofit. Um, we don't have any staff members, but we do have an amazing 10-member uh, board of directors. And we also have uh, support from other entrepreneurial uh, nonprofits in the city. Okay, now, I think you might have already answered this question. It says, was the founding of this organization something that you had been thinking about for years while you were in prison, or was it an idea that came to you since you've been out of prison? 
Right. So the founding of the organization, um, you know, I created this nonprofit out of necessity. Swag Inc. introduced a new business model in the criminal, excuse me, in the mass incarceration space that allows for collaboration between the business community, the entrepreneurial ecosystem, the Department of Corrections, where retention reduces recidivism. And so I've been a returning citizen, Keith, my whole life. I've been impacted by mass incarceration over 30 years. Uh, I've from an adult perspective, I've been in prison at 18, 21, and 35. And so I created Swag Inc. Um, out of necessity, as I said. Okay, so that means you were in prison at different intervals. Yes, sir. And how much was the total amount of time that you spent in prison altogether? Uh, 15 years of my life um, mm -hmm. in the Department of Corrections and also uh, a part of my adolescence in juvenile hall as well. What's the longest you stayed out of prison before you had a recidivism event? Ten years. Ten years. That was that was a pretty good run, but it wasn't long enough. <laughs> <laughs> right, right, right. Uh, and it's an interesting story behind that that one as well. Can you briefly elaborate on it? Uh, my pleasure. And so um, back in 2001, I believe it was, um, I was... Uh, uh, I went to prison for possession of marijuana. I had 21 grams of marijuana. My first drug offense, I received uh, four years. I served three and a half. And, you know, once I, I was released, I determined that I wanted to show up for my life through education. And so I went to Kansas State University, uh, received three degrees, a Bachelor of Science in Criminology, a BS in Sociology, and an AS in Psychology. And I hadn't had any uh, police impact for that 10-year period. You know, it's, it's really uh, refreshing and, and it's inspirational to see some of the guys just getting out of prison now coming out with uh, the type of goals that people like you have, you know, and, and getting involved in things that are going to try to keep people from getting caught up in some of the traps that we got caught up in. And I hope that trend continues. You know, uh, how long did you serve while you were in prison? Well, this last time I served five years for possession to distribute cocaine. Mm -hmm. And to unpack that a little bit, I wasn't the target of the investigation. My friend was. I was in the process of, you know, trying to start a career, getting accepted in law school, these kind of things. Um, but because I went zero for 200 um, in the workforce uh, space, I did ultimately start back selling drugs. But in this situation, I wasn't the target. The detectives approached me and asked for me to tie in their three-state case against him. Um, I refused, and they dropped the charges against my friend, and they filed it on me. And you had a situation in which every player in the courtroom, the judge, the bailiff, the prosecutor, the public defender, the clerk, they all knew that I did not commit a crime, but they sent me to prison anyway. <laughs> yeah, that's that's a universal scenario, <laughs> right? You have no friend in the courtroom. Yeah. And how long had you have you been out now? I've been out four and a half years. Mm -hmm. Okay. What are the uh, some of the warning signs of? Uh, do you think? that a person shows when he's likely to reoffend. When they're likely to reoffend. Um isolation, uh depression when you when you're um referring to returning citizens, but I think um when we start navigating the waters of prosecution, persecution and prostitution, um having toxic relationships, um abusing or using drugs and alcohol and anything that is not conducive uh, to not violating, especially if you're on probation and parole. Can you give me some of the factors in your life that influenced you to take a different path? I most certainly can. Um, and so I like to use the symbolism of a 10-rung ladder uh, in terms of upward social mobility, Keith, um, and it being 10 rungs, right? And so some of us are born onto a 10th rung, maybe a ninth, or eighth, we have two or one rungs to go in terms of upward social mobility. But for me, uh, my 10 rungs are dysfunction, trauma, poverty, systemic racism, disenfranchisement, foster care, gang life, prison, and environments. And I would have to create my 10th rung in Swag Inc. through the vehicle of social entrepreneurship, which allows me to elevate not only my status, um, but the people around me as well. Um, and so my journey has mirrored the social inequity, social inequities of black people at large over the last 40 years. And I've got to be a part of those encounters and experiences firsthand. 
Okay, what's the best advice that you can give to people who are incarcerated and respect and are expecting to be released at some time in the future? It's a really great question. Um, I come from the culture of incarceration, right? So I've been to prison three times as an adult, um, spent time in juvenile hall, and I've been privy to saying, when I get out of jail, I'm going to do this, and I never do, right? And so that's the first thing, um, is to create you a plan. Uh, whatever you say that you're going to do, get out and do it. Um, that's important. And find or create or connect to a support system, right? Um, that's very uh, significant. Okay, like when we were back in the conference room a while ago, like we had a discussion about this. I wanted to ask you, what are the four most important things prisoners need once they've been released? And I had a list of items here, you know, that relate to me personally, you know, and I think they probably pretty much deal with a lot of people too. It says a stable income, a place of their own to live, a functional automobile, and a reliable network of family and friends. Is there anything else that you can add to that list? Absolutely. Well, that list is essential. Um, I think that's Maslow's hierarchy of needs, right, that every human being needs to be successful in this uh, social experience. But when it comes to returning citizens, I think that while we need all of those things, because of the way that we return to the community, um, we're expected to manage these responsibilities in one interim of time. Right, we could be debilitating to someone who doesn't know how to navigate their social world, doesn't have relationships, doesn't know how systems and processes work, don't know where their acumen is. And so I think that the first thing returning citizens are some things that returning citizens need is first to heal from this prison experience, right? And then to unlearn those things that were necessary in that environment and then to learn things that are pro-social in this new environment and to connect. Right. We have to have something to connect into that will allow us to actualize and be the best versions of ourselves. Do you think we need more organizations like yours that are committed to helping prisoners once they get out of prison and while they're in prison? I most certainly do. When you look at the state of affairs in the United States, <clears throat> excuse me, let's take a look at it. We have 1.9 million people that are incarcerated. 70% of those would be otherwise eligible to participate in the workforce if they weren't incarcerated for a nonviolent drug offense. When we look at Missouri and its incarceration record, um, it incarcerates more than any known landmass in the universe. It incarcerates more than any developed nation. It is the number one incarcerator in the United States in the universe, the state of Missouri, right? And so we have 51,000 people that are incarcerated in Missouri, 13,000 of those returning every year. And between the first and third year, we have 40 to 70 percent of those going back to incarceration. We have 2,100 returning citizens coming to Jackson County, where my office is and where we do our work out of. The services that we offer, uh, we hope to disrupt mass incarceration and get recidivism to a functional zero, meaning you're not going to prison unless you want to kind of thing. Um, but we can't touch all of the holes in this space. Um, it's a lot of work to be done. And so I believe that a pathway to ownership for returning citizens is through social entrepreneurship and the five principles of design thinking which are empathy, IDA, prototype, defined, and test, and the preambles of social entrepreneurship is to create a business plan or an opportunity that eliminates the pain points of people. And so social entrepreneurs, we leverage our passion for something that we're passionate about in our community that experiences social inequity, and we solve for that. So I would suggest to you know returning citizens to create a nonprofit and identify a pain point in this mass incarceration system and get on the train to disrupting it. Okay, does ownership have one specific definition in your line of work or are there variations of other forms of ownership? So really great question, uh, Keith. For SWAG Inc., we believe that ownership has two definitions and from a social and economical perspective. And so ownership from a soci sociological perspective is about being resilient, having a big heart, doing what you say you're going to do, and showing up. Ownership from an economical perspective is creating a revenue generating model through a business plan that elevates the status of the people around you. Okay, say I was just getting out of prison 
uh, and I wanted to get out and I wanted to start an organization like the one you have, mm-hmm. what are the first steps I need to take in order to do that? Well, it's a really, really great question. Um, we have to identify the right entity to provide that service. And so when I came home uh, back in March 22nd, 2018, I had that same desire, right? I had this business plan. I wanted to enter the entrepreneurial ecosystem, and I didn't know how. And for me, I was fortunate enough to be in a role at UPS in Human Resources, and I was doing hiring affairs. And I met uh, a man by the name of Dan Smith. Uh, who worked at the Full Employment Council, but is now a co-founder of the Porterhouse KC. And I had my business plan that I wrote in prison, and I approached Dan because he just looked like the brother possessed light. And I approached him and I said, hey, you know, I'm, I'm at UPS, I'm in Human Resources, but I want to start a nonprofit. Would you mind reading through my business plan and giving me your thoughts? And so, longer story short, he told me while I while I can while I do entrepreneur development, I don't focus on returning citizens, but I know a great organization that does, and that's Determination Incorporated, and I was able to get connected with them. And so um, I would say identify the correct um, organization, but. Swag Inc. is also in the process of developing a long-term relationship with probation and parole where these um, returning citizens have access to our programs and services uh, in the community and before they get released. And so they'll be able to identify us immediately. Okay. Do you keep statistics on crime? Do I keep statistics on crime? Um, I can't say that I do keep statistics on crime per se. Okay, do you think that there has been a rise or a reduction in crime? In Kansas City, Missouri? Yeah, in the, in the area. Yeah, in this, in this area. Because uh, you got a lot of people that's screaming about that right now. And right. Some people say it's just hype, and other people say, no, it's a reality. Right. Well, that's, that's an amazing uh, question, Keith. So let me say this. Um, we were at... Uh, we being uh, community partners, we were at Transitional Center of Kansas City, and they had the governor um, in, and the governor was talking about, you know, how they needed more police on the street because of the rise in violence. But what we find is that, you know, for all intended purposes, it's, it's remained the same, right? So then it comes, you know, about agenda. And again, Missouri incarcerates the highest rate of any known landmass in the universe, Right. Has, okay, now if there has been a rise in crime, what do you think the causes or should be attributed to? And so disenfranchisement, mm-hmm. right? Um, look at where this, this crime is, is coming from. We find that it's to be in this new nice term of urban areas, right? But we're talking about the ghetto, right? And the people that have been looked over, underbanked communities. Um, and so... And then it really brings us to the point of our youth. Like, are they are their futures protected? You know what I mean? It's a theory called perceived incivility theory where it states that your social world should confirm your upward social mobility. Right. But if we're talking about in the places that we're talking about where you have dilapidated buildings, broken down cars, systemic racism, drugs, violence, gangs, you, 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 you assume that that's all you can ever be and you subscribe to that, as I did. And I think... A, the vehicle of social entrepreneurship will bust that up, and that's what we need to take in our hands to be able to restore and have ownership in our communities and quit looking towards politicians to um, do something about it, because obviously they're disinterested. Okay, did you encounter uh, incidents of prison abuse by staff members? Is that a serious problem in the prisons you've been in, and do you think it's a serious problem in all the other prisons? I believe it's it's a tremendous problem and An I epidemic. Did. It's, a, it's 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 tragic. And I have um my last prison experience I was sexually abused by a correction officer and it's something that I don't really talk about right. but it will be um in my memoir Returning Citizen from Debtor to Owner and right. it impacted you know the resources I could have to make me be successful once I released. And so um, to kind of unpack what that looked like for me during the shakedown, Mm -hmm. the officer asked me to strip naked. And so I complied. And then, you know, he wanted me to fondle myself. And I was like, I'm not doing that. Right. (laughs) You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. And so then he did. 
system. Right. And so now I'm in a room where now I fight these officers. I'm facing more time. I'm getting sexually abused, mm -hmm. you know, but I found physically abused. Right. I filed a grievance and I submitted the paperwork and, you know, they, they denied it. But we'll see um, what a higher court has to say here in the future. Well, I'm, I'm sorry you had that experience. I'm saying I know it's probably not something that's unique. It's, 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 it's happened in a number of other cases. But the point that I was trying to get to is that how do you think the abuses that people suffer in prison help contribute to the conditions of crime? Because we always hammer on that when we try to deal with people that, uh, who run these places where they have people incarcerated. We, have, we try to make them understand that, look, when you abuse people in prison, they come out with chips on their shoulder and they re they looking for some revenge on anybody they can get it on. So, you know, you may think that you are discouraging people from wanting to be back in the system, but actually what you're doing is you're breeding more criminal behavior. What is your opinion on that? Um, I absolutely agree with you, Keith, and uh, here's why. Um, not only did I experience abuses that would make me angry um, and want to commit violence amongst people, but I was in Lansing Correctional Facility in the Max, <coughs> excuse me, <coughs> with a gentleman, um, a Hispanic guy, uh, that got out of prison a little later than me, about six months back in uh, 2018. And I don't know if you recall, Stan, but it was a, a mass shooting at a, a Mexican bar in KCK kind of thing. Well, I was in prison with the Hispanic guy that did that, but he had only been out of prison six months. And so what, what would allow someone to get out of prison and then go commit a mass shooting? Well, all of those abuses that they experienced in prison, and they stem from no mental health access, the reentry, are your unit teams disenfranchising you, disconnecting you from your family, humiliating you, and then dropping you off in a community and threatening you to be back in prison if you're not successful in a short amount of time, right? And so you have all of these um, mental health uh, disorders that arise and you're not having any any access to care and so when we see someone that shoots up a uh, 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 an establishment on the surface oh that's a horrible person oh he just got out of prison but in my opinion when it comes to to, to recidivism, the people that are responsible for the high recidivism rate are the reentry departments in the Department of Corrections and that's who needs to be held accountable. What do you think can be done to uh, try to combat uh, prison abuse or to bring uh, get people out into the community more aware about these type of things and, and, and put pressure on prison officials to discontinue these practices? Well, we're going to have to have people, organizations that are interested in coming in these prisons, right? Um, you, you, you can't be interested on the outside of the fence, right? We need you on the inside of the fence. And it, it really, um, this is one of the the features or characteristics of the prison industrial complex of mass incarceration when you consider two systems uh, that it originate out of, the Auburn system and the Penn system. In the Auburn system, in terms of incarceration, prisoners were, were kept in solitary confinement as a way that they could atone, you know, for their misgivings. In the Penn system, you know, the 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 restriction of silence would be used, right? Now here comes the, the voiceless. You know, the prisoners were made to be silent as they worked, and over time the prison administration allowed visitors to come in for a fee. And once it grew too much interest, they raised the price to keep people out. And so the object of the prison is to keep people out that want to come in and support and to keep people that are warehoused, alienated from their labor, disenfranchised, silenced, and not seen. Right. So, all right, now, here's another thing we had a discussion about back in the conference room. When I talk with people who have been in prison, I tell them, like, look, man, there's four things it's going to get you back in prison real fast if you don't try to keep a watch over your your conduct. Number one is alcohol. Yes, sir. Number two is drugs. Number three is the possession or use of an illegal firearm. Number four is these crazy-ass women out <laughs> And when I say that, I don't have to. I don't mean that. Just the women don't always got to be the ones who's crazy. It could, it could be the guy that's in the relationship, but you got to be in a stable relationship because you don't need somebody that's 
you know, going to keep a lot of drama going on in, in your environment, and you don't need to be keeping a lot of drama in your environment. What else can you recommend that will help people avoid having another collision where they end up in prison? Wow, Keith. Well, those are the formidable four. <laughs> you know, those are the formidable four. Um, uh, what I would add to it is, you know, we got to do what we say we're going to do. Right. That's our protection. Um, for, for example, for me, the mission is to promote ownership for people impacted by mass incarceration. And so that's the path that I stay on. Uh, I would also throw in there persecution. Right. In terms of putting yourself in a position to be uh, uh, your character dismantled. Right. And then pros- prosecution, putting yourself to be back in the courtroom. And then prostitution, <laughs> again, mm-hmm. uh, you know, having relationships with um, women don't, don't have your best interest in mind and having toxic experiences inside of those. And so for me, those are the four things that I want to stay away from, as well as the four formidable ones that you mentioned. OK, give us real quick uh, some information about how our listeners can get in touch with you. Absolutely. We would love uh, for the listeners to connect with us at Swag Inc. You can do that in two ways. You can connect with us at our website, Swag. 2gsinc.org. Please sign up to receive uh, email communications to stay abreast of um, our movement. Also, we hold a support group every Sunday at Equal Minded Cafe and Event Center, 4327 Truce Ave, from 10 a.m. to 11. And that's really the cornerstone of Swag Inc., our support group for families impacted by mass incarceration. Uh, we have resources, we have stories, and we have opportunities. So we definitely want to stay connected to the people that's been impacted. Thank you for your time, sir. You've been very helpful and insightful. Thank you for having me. It was a pleasure to be on Jaws of Justice. Peace right. and blessings. All right. Somewhere, somehow, well, maybe I'm not supposed to know. We hope you enjoyed today's show and that we leave you with something to think about, something to talk to your neighbors about, and a reason to get involved. As always, the opinions expressed are those of the host and the guest of Jaws of Justice Radio, not of KKFI, the Midcoast Radio Project Incorporated, its staff or volunteers. You can find our calendar of events and a link to our show episodes on the Jaws of Justice Radio Facebook page. You can always listen to us live and find our podcast on the KKFI website, kkfi.org. This is Jeff reminding you our outro music is Higher Ground from the Playing for Change CD. We're going out with Bring Him Home by the East Hills Singers.